Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Dr. Ann Fischel has been there, done that, and then some. Here goes. Anne is a family therapist, clinical psychologist, and associate clinical professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. She's also director of the Family and Couple Therapy Program at Mass General, where she teaches family therapy to child psychiatry residents and psychology interns. Then there's the Family Dinner Project. Anne's the executive director and co-founder. This organization encourages and helps families have more frequent and more meaningful dinner experiences. Anne is also a writer. She co-authored Eat, Laugh, Talk, the Family Dinner Playbook. Home for Dinner, mixing food, fun, and conversation for a happier family and healthier kids. There are her books for therapists, a life cycle approach to treating couples from dating to death, and treating the adolescent in family therapy, a developmental and narrative approach. She's also written a slew of articles for various publications. And she's an editor for the Harvard Review of Psychiatry and Couple and Family Psychology, Research and Practice. Last but not least, Anne has a private practice outside Boston, where she counsels families, couples, and individuals. Well, Anne, it seems we've run out of time. Thanks so much for joining me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Sandy. I'm exhausted just hearing that. I often Uh, ask my guests when they listen to the introduction, even though you've done this for a long time and this is who you are, does it still kind of take your breath away? Yeah, I guess it it does. And I sometimes wonder why can't I do what's appropriate developmentally at this stage of my life and start to wind down a little bit. And yet I, I seem to be just adding things and to be more immersed in the things I love to do than I was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But how great is that, that you're not just phoning it in, that you still get excitement and meaning? Uh, that doesn't happen a lot. Yeah, I feel I feel very lucky to be uh, doing so many things that have meaning and that give me pleasure and that I think are are helpful to other people. You know, I read that you grew up in Manhattan in a close-knit family, and I'm going to quote this line here. Anne earned her B.A. at Harvard in social studies, where she was in a professional clown troupe. Her father used to say, half your class is pre-med and half is pre-law, and my daughter is (laughs) pre-circus. So that sort of says a lot about you. You were serious, but you weren't serious. So that's a great mix. That's true. I think that's been sort of an earmark throughout my life, serious but but not so serious. When I got to college, there was a visiting professor who was teaching clowning, and I thought, (laughs) what fun. And so I signed up, and it turned out to be actually very psychologically difficult work. Um, It wasn't all fun and games. So her idea, the professor's idea of clowning, which she had studied with Jacques Lecoq in Paris, was that your clown is a part of you that you don't much like, um, but that other people find lovable. Oh, wow. So what you have to do is to find that clown and find the clothes that go with that clown and then do improvisations that go with that clown. And my clown turned out to be not so lovable. My clown was very bossy um, and talked a mile a minute and wanted to control everything and was a, a neat nick. And, and her clown, my clown name was Pinky. 
and I dressed all in pink pedal pushers and pink boots, and I was quite a, quite a sight. And after about a year of this training, the clown teacher started a troupe in New York, and I would sneak down from Cambridge on the train to rehearse with her and the other clown wannabes, the other clown wannabes. Yeah, (laughs) and we we performed all up up and down the eastern seaboard, and this is what drove my father wild. Um, So it wasn't just the clown class, but the clown class then turned into, you know, an active uh, theater life mm-hmm. during college mm-hmm. in New York City. For which you got paid, correct? I don't remember getting paid. I oh. think we would put hats out, and oh. um, mm-hmm. I, it was 99-seat theaters, and people would pay a few bucks, and we'd split it up. It wasn't it wasn't much. It might have paid for my train fare. Mm-hmm. That was about it. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I loved it. And I will say, when my mother came to my first clown performance, she said, your clown is me. Um, <laughs> and I thought that <laughs> that was very kind of generous of her. And I, I, I felt I, I worked through a lot of my relationship with my mother through that, that clowning. So it was both fun and serious. That's so interesting, because obviously that wasn't what drove you, I'm assuming, to join that class, to be part of the no. class, you know, and how interesting that that's how it morphed for you. Yes. I think that often happens. You start something for one reason, and when you finish up, you realize you're in a completely different place with it. I find that when I write a book, too, I, I start with one idea, and then by the time I'm done, I'm, I'm someplace else. And I think that's, uh, that's an important part of any creative process, that you kind of let yourself go where it takes you. Right. And it may not be where you started. Yeah, and you have no idea where you're going to end up. But that makes perfect sense for why you studied what you studied, correct? Well, I was actually studying a lot of labor history in college. Oh. Uh, a, little, <laughs> a little psychology on the side. I guess I had it in the back of my mind that that might be something that I wanted to do. But I thought I might be a labor history professor, or I might be a labor organizer. And when I left college, I had a grant to go travel through the South and interview women labor leaders who were organizing against uh, J.P.C. Stevens textile uh, practices. What year was this? This was 1977. And how many female labor leaders were there in 1970? Well, they were all grassroots organizers, so there were lots of them. They were not necessarily paid, but they were um, scrappy women of all ages, and they were organizing on the floor to uh, try to bring unions to J.P. Stevens. And so I went all through the South. I I remember in, in Birmingham, one of the women I had spoken to said, why don't you sneak in with me? Um, to the mill tonight on my overnight shift and see what the working conditions are really like. And so I went in at midnight with her and I took my camera and I took photographs of the terrible working conditions and I could even capture the dust on my uh, in my photos. It was hmm. so thick. And I had a getaway car ready for me when I left and it went so well, I decided I would do it the next night. Um, to get some more pictures. And the next night, there was a cop car 
waiting for me. Uh Um, But I got away and sold the photos. I sold them anonymously because I was afraid that the attorneys would, you know, come after me. And Uh um, the way that circled back to what I do now is that I realized in the course of all those interviews, as exciting as it was to take pictures you know, at two in the morning uh, in a textile mill, what I really loved was helping women tell their stories. Mm. And I realized that that was more my calling than being an organizer. So that was when I applied for graduate school in clinical psychology and kind of made a, a pivot. And talk to me about that. When you graduated, when you got your master's, and then you went on for your doctorate, did, right. you, did you know in the back of your brain what it was you exactly that you wanted to do. Did you want to have a practice? Did you want to teach? Did you want to do research? Or was it all of the above? It was all of the above. I knew I wanted to somehow combine it all. And I got a sense in graduate school that I also wanted to be a family therapist. I felt that that was um, something that was very exciting to me to to be outnumbered, to uh, have to keep track of lots of dynamics in a room and to connect with multiple people at the same time. So I knew I wanted to get some more training in that, and, and I did. After graduate school, I did two more years of training in family therapy. I knew I wanted to write. I wanted to do research. I, I wanted to work in an academic setting um, and to have a, a practice as well. So I had that in mind really in my late 20s when I finished uh, my PhD. You know, Anne, I say this line all the time, and I I don't mean for it to be watered down because I feel so strongly about it. Practically all of the women I have interviewed have had this amazingly strong sense of self, whether that was fostered by family or outside influences or just who they are as part of their DNA. And I'm guessing that that really applies to you in spades. I don't know that I would have said that about me as a child, but uh, I was pretty reserved as a child and bookish and a little quirky. And, well, maybe the quirkiness is part of having your own sense of self and style. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I I feel I kind of burst onto the scene as a a teenager, and then there was sort of no... I I did have a lot of sense of, of purpose and things I was just burning to do. And there was encouragement along the way. There was encouragement and there was also a bit of a a scance. And I think you heard that in my father's. He was bemused by my being pre-circus. Yeah. Um, But there was also a kind of, couldn't you conform a little bit more than you you are? Um, But, you know, it was was both, a Mm -hmm. kind of appreciation for who I was and also a, a kind of where did you come from and what's this all about, a kind of not quite sure about me sometimes, I right. think. That didn't matter because you just soldiered on. I did. I did. And I, I have an older sister who was um, always a, a strong supporter of mine and never really questioned anything that that I did. And I think that also helped me tremendously uh, feel confident even during times when my parents were a little eyebrows raised about yeah. what I was doing. Right. So what came first once you got your degrees? Did you want to open up your own practice? Did you want to teach? What was driving you? What was your desire? 
Um, my desire was really to be the best, most competent clinician I could be. So that that drove me initially to get extra training and to keep going to supervisors and going to conferences and trying to really feel that I could be helpful to families and couples. So I think that was my, my primary desire. And then teaching kicked in pretty early. I had done some teaching uh, as an undergraduate in college. I had taught through graduate school to pay my way. And I realized that I loved that too. And so my first job right out of training was teaching in the emergency room at Mass General, teaching the psychiatry residents what to do when families came in in crisis to the emergency room. So here's my own naivete. I didn't even know such a thing existed. That's fascinating. Yeah. um, There's a lot to learn about how to handle emergencies, child emergencies and family emergencies. And yeah, psychiatry residents do need some extra training to, to handle that. I taught a class once a week to the residents, and then I was on hand a few hours a week so that we could see families together who came in in crisis, right. and we would interview them together. And so that was another kind of a, a teaching, mm-hmm. um, teaching by doing. Right. So you were juggling a lot of balls in the air at once? Yes. Yes, I think that's been true throughout my career. I don't think I've ever done just one thing at, at one time. And when it works best, the thing that I'm writing about, I might also be teaching about, and I'm also thinking about some of the time when I'm seeing my patients. They all sort of work in synergy together. But often it just feels like I've got a lot going on at once, and I hope I'm not going to drop any ball. Well, I was just going to ask if you ever exhale. I, <laughs> I do. I do. I, I'm, a, I'm a yoga practitioner, and that's been a, a lifesaver. So I, I try to do deep breathing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to talk to you about your family dinner project. How was this born, and why was it born? So I think whenever you feel really passionately about something, there are several streams that run into that rushing river. And so I would go back to my, my childhood dinners that were um, such an important part of of my childhood. Seven o'clock at dinner with my parents and my sister, you could set your watch by it. And we were a family that really didn't do other rituals. We didn't observe many religious rituals. We didn't make a big fuss about birthdays, but family dinners were really important. You know, I saw my mother spinning very quickly in and out of the kitchen. She was a a feminist. She didn't like the idea of being stuck in the kitchen. So she would whip things up very quickly so that she could get to what was important to her, which was talking with all of us. And I think a lot of things that I picked up at the dinner table have helped me as a family therapist. And I've been aware of that. You know, I, I know that even if somebody's quiet, it doesn't mean they don't have something to say, Mm -hmm. that you can deflect conflict with humor, that stories are a great way to make a point or to engage people. So anyway, I I had that in the background as kind of a constant thrum. And then uh, when my second son was born, my husband gave up smoking. 
and I thought, hmm, I know this is going to be really hard. What can I do to make it easier for him? And I thought, I know, I can make a one great meal or a good meal a day for him. Um, that'll be another kind of oral treat, an yeah. oral pleasure for mm-hmm. him. And so I I did that. I was a uh, you know, working mom. I had these two little boys, and it turned out that they loved to hang out in the kitchen with me, puttering you know, with Tupperware and pots and pans and stirring the soup. And then anything that they had gotten their hands on, they wanted to eat too. So that was a kind of an extra bonus. They turned out to be really adventurous eaters. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew about that. And then one night was seeing a family in my office, which sits right below the kitchen in my home. And I had popped a roast chicken in the oven and I knew it would be ready when my session was over. And I went downstairs to see a family. It was a father and son and they were very testy and I was was pulling teeth to get either one of them to talk. And we were about halfway through this tedious hour when we all started to smell the chicken <laughs> wafting through the through the, the vents, vent. uh-huh. and I was sort of embarrassed because it it seemed like a boundary crossing, right, was, right, you know. And and then to make matters worse, the teenage son said, "Oh, could we stay for dinner?" <laughs> I I just cringed, and I thought, not only can you not stay for dinner, but you're missing your own dinner hour, and you're probably gonna go have takeout and. And in that, I kind of froze, and I I had this whole fantasy flash before my eyes, which was that I wanted to say to them, you know, why don't you just leave, take a cookbook, go home, make dinner together, eat it, and you'll be better off than staying here with me. And I, you know, I didn't say that, but I had a sense that the research on family dinner would back me up. And indeed, it did. I knew a little bit about the research, but since then, I've really, you know, kept track of the dozens and dozens of studies over the last 20 years that show that family dinners are so great for health, you know, in terms of lower fat and sugar and salt and lower calories and better cardiovascular health and all of that. And it's great for academic performance, great vocabulary boosting for young kids even better than reading aloud to them because of all the unusual words they hear at the dinner table Mm -hmm. and great for mental health. I mean, it could really put me out of business. Regular (laughs) family dinners are associated with lower rates of substance abuse and depression and anxiety and eating disorders. I mean, it's exactly, you know, the kinds of things I'm trying to uh, help families with. So I knew that families want to have dinners, but something like 30% of American families are actually having dinners. So the family's long answer, the family dinner project came about in part to try to make that gulf narrower, to make it easier for families to have uh, more family dinners and better quality family dinners. I want context. What year was this? Um, Well, let's see. The epiphany in my office was probably 20 years ago, Uh and I started to work on Home for Dinner, uh, mixing food, fun, and conversation. I started to work on that in 2007. And the Family Dinner Project started in 2010. So the project has been going for about 10 years. 
and that's a wonderful team effort with folks from not just family therapists, but somebody from marketing, from conflict resolution, from the food world, design, social work, a whole bunch of us got together with a kind of shared passion for the ways that family dinners can help families come together um, through food, fun, and conversation about things that matter. How did you reach Um, out to the people who needed to hear about this? We've done it in lots of different ways. We have a website, thefamilydinnerproject.org, that has so many resources, not just great recipes that take less than 30 minutes to make, budget-friendly recipes that uh, accord with SNAP and WIC guidelines so that it's a $1.40 a person, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but also you know, the idea that family dinner is not just about the food. Food is what brings families to the table, but what really brings the benefits and what keeps people at the table is what happens there. And so we also have games to play at the table and conversation starters to make things lively and meaningful. That's one thing. They're all free resources. And then we work with partners who help spread the word online. We have online partners like Common Sense Media and Giving Tuesday and many others. And then we do workshops. We're doing a whole bunch of workshops with grandparents raising grandchildren all across the state of Massachusetts and uh, workshops in Montana with No Kid Hungry and other projects like that. And then we do community dinners, which are I'm doing one tonight in Needham, Massachusetts, where we bring anywhere from five to 50 families together. And we, we cook, we eat, we play games, we talk about what gets in the way of having a family dinner. Uh, and then we ask parents to brainstorm together about the solutions that they have, because that's really where all of our best ideas come from, comes from other other parents and uh, families. More so today, I would think, than back in the day, you have your work cut out for you. Example, it's not a family dinner in the dining room that I'm going to reference, but I was out to dinner at a restaurant with a friend. and We were having an early dinner before we were going to see a dance program in Manhattan. And I happened to turn next to me, and there was a mother and a son, young son, maybe he was 10-ish, a little older, and there wasn't a word exchanged between the two of them, and it completely and totally blew my mind that it wasn't just him on his phone. It was her on her phone. And how many times have you seen this? And a child is in a booster at the table Give little Bobby, who's two years old, the iPad, and he won't fuss. I mean, I would think it's gotten worse. Yeah, I think uh, families are more distracted, I think, than they've ever been. And parents are really the leaders of this charge. I, I did a study a while ago and found that parents are twice as likely to have phones at the table as their kids So I I think about a family that uh, we write about in Eat, Laugh, Talk, and the title of that recipe and conversation starter and game for that family is If You Can't Beat Them, Join Them. And it's a story about a father who was divorced who would have his three kids for the weekend, 
and they would be on their phones. And if they weren't on their phones, they would eat quickly and then disperse. They didn't want to sit at the table and talk. And he was really upset about that and didn't know what to do. So he had this great idea, which is that he did dinner in a movie. He showed Ratatouille during dinner. He made a Ratatouille with pasta meal And then he would stop the movie from time to time during the dinner, and they would talk about the food they were having. They would comment on the scene that they had just uh, watched together. And then sometimes he would turn off the sound entirely, and they would look at a, a few bits of the movie, and they would guess what the people were saying with the sound off. And so, sort of in spite of themselves, they had a great conversation Um, And kind of he incorporated the technology into the dinner. And I think there are lots of ways that families might do that. Maybe it's a stepping stone to putting the the phones away altogether. But I know of many, many families who say, okay, you can bring the phone to dinner, but only if you share a text or a photograph or whatever with everybody at the table. Mm-hmm. You cannot text to somebody who's not present. It's upsetting to me when I see a family out to dinner and they're all in their own tree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Has that been for you one of the bigger challenges in your career? I do try to take a sort of balanced perspective about it because I think in some ways it can enhance family connection, you know, the way spouses can can have an arc of connection th- throughout their day by uh, texting sweet nothings or mm-hmm. texting a photo that they see on their way to work or, you know, could you pick up some butter? I want to make some brownies for us tonight. You know, so there are, I think, ways that technology can really help people stay connected over a busy day. And certainly there can be Skyping with and FaceTiming with grandparents or other relatives who aren't there, who could even be included in a family dinner that way. So I think it it really depends how it's being used. But that said, there's no substitute for face-to-face interaction. And, you know, it does concern me that kids and adults are kind of losing that muscle. Yeah. I'm curious, Anne, what would you say has been hmm, the toughest mountain or the hardest mountain for you to climb professionally or maybe most challenging? I've been at Mass General my whole career. So I I did my internship. I did uh, some of my postdoctoral training, and then I stayed. And I think in the beginning, um, there were not that many women. It was a very psychiatry-dominated department, and I was a psychologist. I was teaching family therapy, which was not particularly... uh, Sexy? Sexy, exactly. So there were lots of ways that I was, I felt kind of on the margin. Mm -hmm. Um, And in some ways, I've never minded that. I kind of like to not have the spotlight on me and to work on the side and and see what I can do subversively or, you know, to... Behind um, the scenes. Behind the scenes to see what I can do when no one's really looking at me. Gotcha. So, yeah, it was hard to get promoted. It's 
been a gradual process to feel that family family therapy is now something that is very highly regarded in the child and adolescent program where I teach. Uh, but it wasn't always so. So I guess the sort of acceptance institutionally has, has been a challenge. It must also strike you the fact that you're a psychologist as opposed to a psychiatrist. And again, with the cliche for me in terms of this day and age, you know, the dispensing of all these drugs, that'll solve your problem. Take this and take that. Take Adderall and do all that, whatever it might be. And that must be also, and no pun intended here, a hard pill for you to swallow. Right. Yeah. It has an upside for me because when I'm training psychiatrists and we're talking about a a family or a adolescent, you know, I'll say, I'm going to tell you what I will do, what I could do in terms of language, in terms of uh, talk therapy. I can't prescribe a pill, so that's going to be off the table. We can talk about what you might do, but it's not really an option for me. So I'm going to tell you the ways that I think I could be of help to this family. Mm-hmm. In a way, a child psychiatrist has a, a harder job because there's always that pull, and it's often an ask from a family, could you just give our child some Ritalin or right. some Prozac? Right. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't have that. So I've got to use my, my language and my therapy skills, and they have to figure out... Am I missing the boat here by not giving medication? Is it okay to just do talk therapy? Should we do both? You know, they have, a, a in some ways, a more complicated algorithm uh, to figure out. And what is it that you haven't done that you'd like to do? Obviously, there's no slowing you down. That's patently obvious. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a good thing, too. What do you got in the future for you? Um... You know, there's so much going on in my present that I have not given so much thought to the future. But that said, one thing that I'm, I guess, a sort of wish of mine is that I can, now the Family Dinner Project is at Mass General, and so I have more kind of traction and access to health professionals and mental health professionals. Um, And one of my my dreams is to engage pediatricians in asking every family they see, are you having family dinner? If huh. not, would you like some resources? Sort of the same way that they now ask about seat belts and bike helmets, that it be part of the wellness visit. That would thrill me to have pediatricians touch every family right. with the importance of having family dinner. Sometimes it's just impossible. I know a couple where the dads both work and they have an eight-month-old baby who doesn't get picked up from daycare until 6.30 or so. Now, granted, she's only eight months, but this is what they have to do. And, you know, mm-hmm. her dinner is given to her there. Again, it's, she's you know sitting in a high chair with other little babies, but, you know, maybe that's what's going to happen when she's right. four and five, whatever. But maybe they'll have breakfast with her. That, good good that point. It doesn't family dinner could be family breakfast and confer the very same benefits, or it could be uh, brunch on Saturday and Sunday. Right. Um, right. You know, I think there are many ways to work around parents not being home for dinner. 
But you're optimistic. You feel good about where we're all headed. I do. I feel that it, it's a simple idea. It's just not so easy the way we're setting ourselves up, our family life, our our work lives. But I think it's it's still very doable and still maybe more important than ever because there are so few opportunities for families to relax and hang out and bond, um, have fun together, bond. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a really great way to end, you know, optimistically. You've given a lot of good suggestions. I mean, how great it is that you do what you do and we all benefit from that. And you're just going to keep on keeping on. (laughs) Thank you, Sandy. Well, you too. This was such a pleasure to talk with you and I usually ask the questions, so it was, it was nice to be on the other end for once. Well, it, it, was, it was just so informative. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Anne. I really enjoyed meeting you and getting to know you and a lot of food for thought. <laughs> Thanks, Sandy. Hope our paths cross one day. I hope so, too. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.